0: The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion, Listener discretion. is advanced. There's cars passing. It's like 10 p.m. regular weekday night in Los Angeles. And they're going to stash the guns in this car, and then the car is going to go to Mexico. I think one of the most shocking things I saw while filming Trafficked was an arms deal that happened just a few miles from my home here in Los Angeles. What, what this is? Well, I have an AR-15 with scope, I have a 45 Ruger, I have a Mossberg shotgun, I have an AK-47, and I have another AR-15 wrapped around, brand new. And are these going down tonight? They're going, they should get a shit tonight, actually. I was investigating how American weapons and lax gun laws are fueling violence throughout Mexico. And so it was a regular weeknight, and uh, we went to meet this guy that we were told was connected to the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. Yes. My boys are really relieved, really, they're cops. We're not cops. I know you guys might I'm a journalist. And you know, with families why. around, cars driving by, I mean, they weren't even trying to hide it. And this car, after it was fully packed with guns, uh, was shipped that down to Mexico that same night. These are the guns that are killing Mexicans on a daily basis. The cartels are going at it with the AR-M16s, Mini-14s, but that's the killer machine gun that. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series Trafficked. Each week on the series, I dive into a different black market and meet the people who make their living inside it. But the Trafficked podcast is a little different. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market, how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. David Packow's was in his early 20s when he got into the arms dealing business. He and his partner were sourcing weapons from around the world for a very wealthy client, the United States. The business entered shaky legal territory when they got their sources a little screwed up. You might know his story from the movie War Dogs, but we want to hear it from him directly.
1: We have these multi-million dollar contracts. We have these... Major defense contractors kissing our butts, trying to get our business, you know, serving us hors d'oeuvres and champagne. They gave a couple of kids, a couple of stoner arms dealers, as they called us in the media, uh, uh, the responsibility to arm the Afghan nation.
0: But in arming the Afghan troops, the stoner arms dealers made some bad choices. And they weren't good at getting away with it. And did you know that there were incriminating things in the, the emails?
1: Uh, extremely incriminating. Um, there were emails between us saying, Hey, don't forget to repackage the Chinese ammo. It was extremely incriminating and very obvious.
0: David Backhouse was born in St. Louis, Missouri, but spent the first eight years of his life in Israel. His dad was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. It was a very religious home. When the family moved to Miami Beach, David went to an Orthodox school, but when he was a teenager, David started to push back.
1: In 10th grade, I was politely asked not to come back to the religious high school that I was attending because, as they said, they realized that I didn't want to be religious and they wanted to have a um, environment in the school that was uh, encouraging of religiosity and I was not helping.
0: <laughs> His parents sent him through all sorts of hoops to try to get him back on the straight, orthodox path. But that was hard for a kid who questioned things. He found himself in hot water again, this time after a surprise drug test.
1: I was smoking weed with my friends. In their minds, I was like addicted to heroin. And it was, you know, (laughs) you know, they didn't really make that much distinction. I was caught. And, you know, my parents sent me to like outpatient rehab because I was smoking weed.
0: (laughs) David was deemed a kid with a problem. But he was industrious and super eager to make his own way in the world.
1: So in, in University of Florida, I, I was majoring in chemistry. And then I decided to, that I needed to like, ha, I needed to uh, have a way to support myself. So I decided to go to massage school to get a job that was more than minimum wage. I realized doing one massage I could, for an hour I could uh, make more money than someone flipping burgers in a whole day.
0: He moved back to Miami, transferred to college there, and set up shop as a part-time massage therapist. He also picked up some side hustles.
1: I was selling bedsheets and towels to uh, nursing homes uh, in bulk. So I found sources in Pakistan and India to source these things. And uh, I also was importing uh, SD cards and selling them on eBay. You know, I was making a decent amount of money, living comfortably without working that many hours in the day and having plenty of time for school. So there I was, as a massage therapist, going to school, <laughs> studying chemistry, minding my own business, and... Uh, <laughs> and this uh, is the
0: beginning of a great story. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> always, ha- It always starts with minding my own business, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I ran into... My old friend, Ephraim DeViroli, he was four years younger than me, so he he was just about, he was 18, about to turn 19. We went to the same synagogue and he didn't like to pray as much as I didn't like to pray, so we'd like sneak outside the synagogue, you know, on the Sabbath and go hang out outside. We bumped into each other at a mutual friend's house and we were both smoking weed, you know, passing the bong around and, uh, you know, we, uh, as everyone does, so what are you doing these days, you know? And I told him what I was doing and he's like, man, you know, you're really wasting your time with that business. I know you're a smart guy. I need some guy I could trust, you know, we can really blow up this business. You should come and work with me. And so I asked him, um, well, how much money you've made, <laughs> you know, natural, natural question.
0: So. Efren logged into his bank account.
1: He had $1.8 million in the bank. Whoa. I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy crap, this guy's 18 years old. And I was like, holy shit, this guy knows how to make money. I want to know what he knows. <laughs> so I said, I'm in. <laughs>
0: Turns out that Ephraim had also been kicked out of high school. His parents had sent him to live with an uncle who owned a military and police supply shop in Los Angeles.
1: Ephraim started to learn the business from his uncle, and he became obsessed with guns. He just loved guns. He's one of these gun nuts, you know. And uh, he came back to Miami to start his own business.
0: That business was called AEY.
1: So he, he registered that company uh, to do business with the federal government and started bidding on contracts. This was in 2004, right after the Iraq War started, and, and the Bush administration uh, decided to uh, pretty much privatize the procurement process as much as possible. He did very well.
0: This initial success with AUI is what put that $1.8 million into Ephraim DeVaroli's bank account.
1: Yeah, I wanted my bank account to look like his bank account, absolutely. So I said, yeah, I'll come work.
0: The deal was, David wouldn't get a salary, but would get paid on commission.
1: We would both work 18-hour days wow. like, for, like, months on end. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we would wake up, just immediately start working until we just couldn't work, you know, anymore. And then we'd, I'd just, like, pass out on his couch. And, you know, and we'd have to, like, set alarms because we'd want to, like, talk to various people in different countries and in different time zones. So... Yeah, it was intense. In the beginning, it was, we just worked out of his apartment, um, out of his living room. We had a... Wait, you were making
0: sort of international arms deals out of his apartment at the time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was just us two. Yeah. Multi-million dollar deals. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Did you think, I can't believe this is actually happening?
1: I was surprised that this is actually how the whole government procurement system worked, and that all you need is a cell phone and an internet connection.
0: So so explain to me how it works. So the government puts out...
1: The government has a website, fbo.gov, that's federalbusinessopportunities.gov. Um, you will go to the website where the government is required by law to post everything that they want to buy.
0: The website has since changed. I'm not gonna tell you what it is. You can go and look for it yourself. But there you'll be able to find contracts that the government wants to fill. It's public information after all. All of these purchases are made using taxpayer money. And there's everything. Food, fuel, clothing, ammunition. I just typed in socks and found that the US Army is looking for a yearly supply of 28,000 pairs of socks.
1: The US government is the biggest single customer in the world, you know, biggest budget in the world, um, uh, what they do is, in order to save the taxpayer money, is they will put out a what they call a request for quote, an RFQ.
0: How much they want, where they want it, and when they want it by. And the government asks anyone interested and registered with the government to send in their best offer.
1: You'll start small, you'll compete on like, you know, the little 10, 20, $50,000 contracts, uh, you know, win a few of those, deliver successfully, and uh, then you could bid on the bigger ones.
0: Yeah, climb, climb the ladder. Exactly. So what was your first uh, contract when you after you joined the company?
1: So my, the first contract I actually won was for 50,000 gallons of propane. <laughs> And it was uh, delivered to a Air Force base in Wyoming.
0: And where did you source it from?
1: You Google for suppliers of this particular item that you're trying to fill, uh, and you go, you go as many pages down as uh, of Google as you can possibly uh, have patience for, and and contact all the potential suppliers of this item. You build your, a spreadsheet of all the suppliers and all the prices and all the logistics, and uh, then you decide what's the minimum margin you want to make on it. Usually as a rule of thumb, we put 9% because we figured everyone else has put in 10%.
0: So to summarize, David saw a request for quotes for 50,000 gallons of propane, decided he was going to Google around, found a good cheap supplier, gave himself a slightly lower than normal margin, and submitted his bid. And he won the contract. How much money did you make from that first contract?
1: So I made a profit of about $8,000 on that first contract.
0: Well, that's not a lot.
1: It's not a lot, but it was, uh, you know, as a, as a college student, that was uh, a few months of rent right. and living expenses.
0: After delivering that propane, David bid on a bigger contract, gun parts for special forces.
1: And so I had to uh, pretty much search every little gun shop in the United States for, you know, these particular parts.
0: And so how much money did you make from that?
1: Uh, I made about uh, a bit under $30,000 from that. So, yeah, so that was, you know, it it was like the next step up. Like I felt like, hey, you know, I could actually make a living doing this in the hope that I strike it on a big one.
0: It may not seem like jackpot earnings. The U.S. gun and ammunition market rakes in billions of dollars a year. But getting these smaller contracts actually built up the company's reputation and made it possible for them to quickly move into the big leagues. This is where black markets are just like legal markets. The gunrunners I met didn't start out filling massive weapons orders. First, they had to earn the cartel's trust and build up their reputation. For Ephraim and David, in the legal market, it was pretty much the same thing. They knew they needed to build up their reputation. So they took to the road to make connections at gun shows and defense exhibitions. And it was at one of these shows they met a Swiss arms dealer called Heinrich Tomei, whom David sometimes refers to as Henry.
1: He was the, the guy who was in the War Dogs movie played by, uh, by Bradley Cooper. He was a Swiss arms dealer. I think we found out later he was on some uh, watch lists. He'd been reported by Amnesty International. He just knew everybody.
0: So he basically started seeing your company's name popping up everywhere? Exactly, And then decided, um, I better get in touch with these guys. Yeah. That connection ended up being quite important. Heinrich was extremely well-connected. And by association, so were they. And that was especially evident when they went to one particular trade show.
1: So the Paris trade show, it's called Euro Governments and militaries from all around the world and arms manufacturers and military equipment manufacturers from all around the world all come and exhibit to uh, search for uh, suppliers and, and potential customers.
0: It was at a two and a half million square foot space near the airport, an exhibition center. And it was the first time David had ever been to a defense show. So he and Ephraim wanted to look the part.
1: We both wore suits. You know, we felt that's what we should be wearing. Yeah, we both bought these, like... These cool, like, silver briefcases uh, because we thought that you know that looked cool, and like you know, like arms dealer type of briefcase. You know, they, they were like made out of aluminum. You know, and
0: um, wait, had you seen that on somewhere else? Had you seen any arms dealers carrying around
1: uh, silver cases? Probably just in movies. <laughs> we didn't really like, like 007 Yeah, uh, yeah, Bond, exactly, Bond. exactly, exactly. Yeah, the kind of briefcase that you uh, you know handcuff to yourself, that kind of thing. <laughs> (laughs) 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 Not that we had very important stuff in those briefcases, we just had like copies of contracts we'd won so we could prove that we were serious businessmen and things like that.
0: So they walked into this exhibition hall wearing their suits and carrying shiny attache cases. Inside, they saw miles and miles of booths manned by arms manufacturers.
1: One thing that was really cool was outside, they had, like, bleachers, like, in front of this field. And they'd have, like, tanks, like, jumping dunes and, like, helicopters doing exercises. It was, like, like live military demonstrations.
0: So it's so strange to me because ultimately you know that the purpose of all of this is for war and eventually to kill people. Yeah. And and yet it's happening in what a beautiful building in the center of Paris.
1: Yeah, uh, they had an, uh, like an after-show party in the Louvre. We were like you know drinking champagne and eating hors d'oeuvres with like generals from different countries in the Louvre. That was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, we definitely felt like we were in a movie. <laughs> it was very surreal. All the military people are always in like their full parade uniforms to look impressive. And you know, we definitely felt like we were hot shots because you know we're there, we're like striking deals, we have these multi-million dollar contracts, we have these major defense contractors kissing our butts, trying to get our business. Definitely stroke the ego. That was definitely the fun part.
0: All that wheeling and dealing put them in a good position to bid on bigger contracts even though they were the same two young potheads working from a sofa. In 2006, David was driving to his girlfriend's house when he got a frantic call.
1: Ephraim called me up and insisted I, you know, cancel all plans and meet him at the office immediately because, you know, something major is happening. And he's like, uh, you know, I, I just saw, you know, request for a proposal and uh, it's the biggest thing I'd ever seen. And it's exactly the kind of stuff that we have a lot of past performance on. So we've got a real shot at this.
0: David looked at the contract and looked again. This was a really, really big contract.
1: It was enormous. It was everything from like pistol ammunition uh, to, uh, you know, assault rifle ammunition to uh, tank shells to uh, anti-aircraft rockets. And the numbers were enormous. I mean, like 150 million rounds of for the AK-47, like a million grenades.
0: These munitions would help arm the Afghan army. Remember, this was at the peak of their fight against the Taliban. It was a contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Did you think at the time that there was any chance you were going to get this contract?
1: We thought it was a low chance. We knew that that all the major players were going to be bidding on this um, We're very aggressive with with, uh, uh, the profit margins and negotiated very hard. But of course, you know, that's nothing compared to the financial might of General Dynamics.
0: This was David versus Goliath, or rather, David and Ephraim versus Goliath. So the team got to work. They started contacting their suppliers to figure out just how low they could bid. They believed that a low bid was their only shot at getting the contract so they needed some very good deals.
1: So we started working on it. We worked on it for a few months. Henri Tomei gave us uh, some really good prices on the AK-47 ammo. Um, the Swiss businessman? Yeah, exactly, the Swiss businessman, yeah. Um,
0: Where was he sourcing? The,
1: the stuff that he quoted us was from Albania.
0: The quote was low, in part because of the circumstances around the ammunition. It was old, and it was a stockpile Albania wanted to get rid of. They put this very low quote for Heinrich's ammo and quotes for all the other munitions into their bid. They negotiated until the very last possible second, printed their paperwork, and jumped in the car 10 minutes before the post office closed. They sped down residential streets, and then, with just seconds to spare, they mailed it in.
1: We bid the contract at $298 million. Whoa yeah
0: that is insane It's insane okay and so then what happened
1: so in January I was just getting home from doing a massage and Ephraim calls me up and he's like hey I've got some good news and bad news and I'm like well what's what's the bad news he's like the first order is only 600k and I'm like what we won the contract and he's like Enough. yeah we did <laughs>
0: <laughs> they'd won the nearly 300 million dollar contract did you start jumping up and down or what was your reaction
1: i was like oh my god you know <laughs> yeah
0: how, how old were you
1: uh when we won the contract i was 25 years old
0: that is crazy did you go ahead and start buying things or spending some um, money that you hadn't made yet
1: I did move into a nicer apartment. Not as nice as they show in the movie, but hey, that's Hollywood. And I bought a nicer car.
0: <laughs> what
1: car was uh, that? I got an Audi A4. So nothing too crazy, that's but, nice but it was definitely a lot better than the Mazda protege I was driving at the time.
0: Then the hard part started.
1: So, uh, you know, we immediately recontacted everyone who gave us a price and started negotiating them down again. Uh, saying, and hey we guys, started you know, we won the contract uh, no, us uh, for... Um, logistics companies to so when uh, to we would identify them, a the, supplier the stuff, that had um, the best possible price, you know, cons- we would consider a contracts with costs them. Involved, export um, license from the country, import that license from the country from. you're importing from, and you need to get flyover permits for every country and of course, of course, you get the best over. possible price on shipping because that was know, that mainly, mainly what, what I did. And of course, margins. deal with the government because they're constantly hounding you for updates and documentation and blah blah blah.
0: So was that a a normal job for a single person?
1: I managed to pull it off. (laughs) I mean, at the time, I was super stressed out.
0: It can sound pretty fun that you're going around the world with the possibility of making millions and millions of dollars, uh, sourcing guns, you know, doing these crazy uh, contracts, traveling the world, all that. So was it fun at all? Was any of it fun?
1: (sighs) The vast majority of it was not fun. It was extremely hard work, extremely stressful. I thought, you know, hey, you know, two years of this, you know, horrible work schedule, and I'm going to be rich, and I'll I'll have exactly, I'll have more money than I'll ever need. You know, my plan was to quit as soon as the contract was done, and to uh, to uh, use some of those millions to jumpstart a music career and become a rock star.
0: (laughs) It's a a good plan.
1: Yeah, I thought so.
0: But first, they have to deliver on the contract. David and Ephraim were pulling together all the ammunition they'd sourced for this major contract. And a huge portion of it was coming from that Swiss arms dealer, Heinrich Tomei.
1: So this ammo that we we sourced for the AK-47, 150 million rounds um, from Henry, it was coming from Albania.
0: During the Cold War, the tiny country of Albania was worried they'd be invaded by their new enemy, the Soviets. They built bunkers across the country and filled them with weapons and ammunition from their new ally, the Chinese. But the invasion never came.
1: Albania became, like per capita, the most armed place on Earth.
0: Fast forward to 2005, when Albania was trying to join NATO. They were required to dismantle some of their Cold War stockpiles
1: because otherwise it would cost them money to dismantle it. So they were happy to sell it. You know, and that's how uh, uh, Henry, Heinrich Tomei, he um, got an incredibly low price from the Albanian government. You know, I don't want to get sued again by the prime minister's son for slander, so I won't uh, speculate. But but there were claims that uh, there was a lot of bribery going on.
0: So this ammunition Heinrich sourced was from the Cold War. Usually uh, in contracts, there's uh, expiration for the ammo. So because it's perishable and then it can malfunction or it could become dangerous, right?
1: Right. So so the, the U.S. Army contract specifically said that there was no age limit. Different militaries have different standards. Uh, the U.S. Army, of course, for the, our own soldiers, has very high standards about the age. I don't know what the actual limitations are, but it wouldn't surprise me if, like, every you know, ten, twenty years, you know, they have to throw everything out or something like that. They did put a requirement that it has to be "quote unquote" serviceable without qualification, meaning it has to work.
0: And it was forty years old, more or less. That be-
1: uh, yeah.
0: Whether it was serviceable was a matter of debate. Ammunition can become less reliable after about 10 years. David is confident that it was serviceable, but others have questioned it.
1: I mean, we did tests. You know, we actually you you know, shot the, the, the ammunition just to make sure it worked.
0: They had to work quickly. David says there was a lot of pressure from the U.S. Army.
1: Our Afghan allies uh, fighting the Taliban were running low on ammunition, and the U.S. Army, who was tasked with supplying them, was screaming at us to hurry up and get the ammo over to Afghanistan because our allies are dying. We finally got most of the paperwork through for the Albanian uh, source. We sent someone over to inspect it, just to make sure that everything they gave us was good quality. And then we realized we had a problem. There was Chinese markings all over the boxes, Chinese papers inside.
0: You see, there was no age restriction on the contract. But there was another restriction. A blanket ban on Chinese ammunition. The U.S. has had an embargo on weapons purchased from the Chinese since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. But the Afghan contracts just said flat out, no Chinese ammunition. And what they were looking at was exactly that. Ammunition that was all originally from China. Stockpiled in Albania during the Cold War,
1: we thought crap, we're in trouble. <laughs> you know, we we're like, oh, oh no, <laughs> you know, we, you know, everything could collapse right here. Either we can go to the army and say, hey guys, you know, we know that our contract says no Chinese, but this does not actually violate the embargo. They could either say, sure, yeah, that makes sense, or, depending on who whose desk this comes across, they might say something like, well, you know. You guys won unfairly, and therefore we're going to take this contract away from you and rebid it out to everyone. And here's a big bill for having to do that.
0: (laughs) But here's the thing. According to court records, Ephraim had sent emails to the State Department posing a question. In theory, could a U.S. company fill a U.S. government contract with Chinese ammunition if it had been stored in Albania? And the State Department responded. They said... No, but AUI did it anyway.
1: We figured, you know what? What they don't know won't hurt them. <laughs> Let's just repackage it and, uh, you know, remove all the Chinese markings and papers and put into other boxes and just deliver it.
0: I mean, how easy was it to make it look like it wasn't Chinese?
1: Right. So the Chinese markings were. On the, on the crates, they're big, heavy wooden crates. And uh, also on the sardine cans, the metal vacuum-sealed uh, containers that were inside the wooden crates. And also inside the sardine cans, there are these like, papers with like Chinese markings on it, you know, like the specifications of the ammunition. So to remove all trace of Chinese, we had to remove all that.
0: This whole process took time. They had to remove all the bullets from their containers and transfer them into cardboard boxes, one by one. So eventually they had to come up with an excuse for why they were so delayed.
1: We told the um, the receiver in Afghanistan, hey, you know, we want to make sure that this is all very high quality. So we're going to be removing it from their containers so we can do a visual inspection, make sure there's no corrosion. We were lying about the reasons we were doing the repackaging. Uh, the main reason was because it was Chinese. And the second thing was to save money on air freight, which we did save like $3 million on air freight just by changing to cardboard boxes.
0: So at this moment when you're lying, um, yeah. was there a moment there you thought, this is sketchy, I'm doing something that's illegal, maybe I shouldn't be doing this?
1: Yes. I, was, I thought, you know, this is extremely risky and I can get into deep trouble here. It's a roll of the dice. I stood to make millions of dollars and I felt that the risk was worth it, obviously, because I took the risk.
0: They went through with the repackaging and sent it off from Albania to Afghanistan. And the Department of Defense accepted it. They might actually have gotten away with the whole thing, but they pushed their luck. So how did you get busted?
1: Ephraim was always looking for a better deal, always trying to increase the profit margins. And uh, he kept on telling the Albanians, hey, you guys got to give us a better deal. You got to give us, you know, I'm like getting killed on the air freight here. You know, Uh, So the Albanians were like, we'll make you a deal. We know that you're repackaging the ammo and you hired this random Albanian company to do it. Why don't you give us the repackaging contract and then we can give you a little discount on the ammo. So Ephraim said, sure. Contract's yours, no problem. Now him doing that ended up getting the original repacker.
0: Initial, initial repacker.
1: Yeah, yeah. Pissed off. Yeah, he got really upset. He got stuck with twenty thousand dollars worth of boxes, that he had nothing wasn't able to do anything with it. And he recorded Ephraim secretly. Ephraim pretty much admits that he believes that the Albanians he's buying the ammo from are associated with the mafia.
0: As somebody who's working in a contract for the US government, that's not good look.
1: Right, definitely not a good look.
0: That recording sparked a series of investigations, including one by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So at what point, when exactly was it, what was the moment that you realized that things were about to, you know, turn south very fast?
1: So, in August 23rd, 2007.
0: Yeah, you remember the day exactly. Yeah,
1: a date that shall live in infamy. Uh, <laughs> um... <laughs> Immigration Customs Enforcement, ICE, um, uh, raided uh, Ephraim's office.
0: David says Ephraim's office because about two months before this, he and Ephraim had a falling out.
1: He informed me that uh, he didn't feel like I deserved to get paid.
0: So David left AEY.
1: I was told by someone who worked in his office that, uh, that the government confiscated all his file cabinets and all his computers. And the jig was up, or whatever the term is, right? Uh, Um, So, yeah, I immediately uh, hired a lawyer and the lawyer said, "Okay, well, you know, look through your emails. What kind of evidence do they have?
0: Because they had access to your emails.
1: Yeah. If we were a little bit more careful, we probably couldn't have gotten away with it. But we weren't. Once I did like a search on my Gmail account and, you know, like put in Chinese ammunition and repackaging, there was no real denying of what happened.
0: And did you know that there was incriminating things in the, the emails?
1: Ah, uh, extremely incriminating. Um, there were emails between us saying, hey, don't forget the to- Repackage the Chinese ammo. You know, can't have the government finding out about this. You know, it was like it it was it was really dumb. Um,
0: The subject line was uh, "extra secret." Exactly. Please don't read if you're a (laughs)
1: law enforcement agent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Illegal. Re crimes. (laughs) Yeah, it was. uh, It was extremely. It was extremely incriminating and very obvious.
0: It's the opposite of the perfect crime, essentially.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was. The perfect way to get caught, absolutely.
0: After scrolling and scrolling through incriminating emails, David made a decision.
1: Uh, So eventually my lawyer said, hey, you know, you should just, you know, start cooperating as soon as possible to get them on your side. And I had no loyalty to Ephraim, of course, because he had just stolen every penny I worked for for the past, you know, year and a half. Um, And so uh, my lawyer contacted the agents and uh, we agreed to cooperate.
0: By cooperating, he hoped to avoid prison time.
1: So at first, the government told me that they wouldn't charge me with any crimes, that they weren't really going for me. They kind of let it go for, for about six months. And, you know, we thought, OK, well, maybe they're just not going to do anything about it. It seemed like they were going to until The New York Times published their front page article about us. And the front page article had mine and Ephraim's mug shots. And, yeah, we didn't look too good.
0: That New York Times investigation found that some ammo was not serviceable. David is still confident that, counter to what the article claimed, all the ammo they delivered was serviceable, all except one small shipment. So was there was there ever a part of you that felt bad knowing that this was very, you know, substandard and old ammunition that can actually right. become very dangerous for?
1: The army looked at it, rejected it because it was uh, corroded. And, you know, uh, not high quality. It was, it was all rusty.
0: If all went according to your and Ephraim's plan and it would have made right. it in, do you feel any guilt or responsibility or, or, or any remorse? If,
1: okay, if that shipment had gone through and it was actually used in a way that put our allies in danger, absolutely, I would. But it didn't. Uh, it was definitely a mistake to try to ship that without inspecting it. We should not have done that. I will I will uh, admit that and take responsibility for not inspecting it. Luckily, the army did inspect it and didn't pay, pay us for it. So we just lost money on the shipping, <laughs> is what it turned out. But the army testified that they had no problems with the quality of the ammunition. So no, I don't have any guilty feelings about the quality of the ammunition that we shipped because there were no problems except for this one exception.
0: So David claims that only this one shipment was faulty. And an ammo expert testified that samples he took from the Albanian shipments were actually fine. But Defense Department officials described shipments, plural, with significant corrosion. We should say that some of these deliveries happened after David left A.E.Y. From a legal standpoint, David and Ephraim only got in trouble for lying about the origin of the Albanian shipments, not for its quality. Remember, the contract didn't have many restrictions. David and Ephraim had scoured the world for very cheap munitions, and the government gave them the contract. There was a lot of uproar about AUI's deliveries, who knew what about the origin and the quality of the ammo? Despite reports of the company's history of providing shoddy illegal ammunition, David and Ephraim were hired for a job by underbidding their competitors by $53 million. So who was ultimately responsible? The stoner kids or the people who hired the stoner kids?
1: I saw my name start popping up everywhere and you know, it became like a worldwide story. Uh, Congress held hearings about it on C-SPAN. David Pakows, former vice president, uh, he was called a masseur. They were to provide weapons and ammunition to the Afghan fighters. Because it was used as, as a portrayal of the, 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 the Bush administration's incompetence in running the uh, Iraq war that they gave a couple of kids, a couple of stoner arms dealers, as they called us in the media, uh, <laughs> Uh, the responsibility to arm the Afghan nation.
0: Would you agree with that portrayal of you?
1: Um, it would have definitely been uh, less risky to go with an established player. That's for sure. They knew that uh, they're going. They could either go safe or go cheap, and they made the choice, the informed decision, to go cheap. Maybe they should have more stringent requirements uh, in their contracting procedures. Definitely a lot of people feel so, but that will come at a cost. It'll come at a cost of them paying more money.
0: So you think the responsibility lies on the American government?
1: They knew who we were. You know, they don't just give a $300 million contract without you know knowing who they're giving it to.
0: A House Oversight Committee investigation later found that AUI and Ephraim DeViroli were on a US arms trafficker watch list which the Defense Department apparently never consulted before awarding the contract. This was called a case study in military contracting gone wrong.
1: We actually met the, the government before they gave us the contract in person. So yes, they knew who we were. They knew how young we were. They visited our offices. You know, they, they, knew it. they knew everything. Yeah.
0: The Army continued to accept orders with AUI for months after the raid on their office. Until the New York Times article was published.
1: Two days after that, the Justice Department informed us that they were going to charge us with fraud. And the the legal theory went like this. We delivered 71 aircraft loads of this ammunition, this Chinese-origin ammunition, from Albania to Afghanistan.
0: For each shipment, they signed a document. It said, point of origin, Albania, not China.
1: Each time you sign this document is an act of fraud against the, the U.S. government, and you signed 71 of these documents, and each one can get up to five years in prison. So you can have 355 years in prison if you fight wow. us. If you plead guilty, we will combine those 71 acts into one, and you can get a maximum of five years. Uh, so it wasn't really much of a choice, especially considering, you know, we had strong evidence against us yeah, we lied to the government, but what we actually did wasn't illegal other than the lie itself. You know, it, it wasn't, we didn't violate any embargo. And the judge went very easy on me. I was very lucky. Um, and, and I only got seven months of house arrest and, uh, seven months of probation after that.
0: Did you make any money from that Afghan contract?
1: So Ephraim took all the money. He didn't pay me a penny.
0: In his court case, Ephraim pleaded guilty and was sentenced to four years in prison. Meanwhile, David sat at home under house arrest, thinking about how to basically start his life again, from scratch.
1: It ended up being a very good thing for me, I think. uh, I really turned my life around from there. How so? While I was in house arrest, um, I'm a musician, I've always been a musician. And um, I was playing guitar at home because I had nothing to do. You know, I think everyone during the pandemic could relate to this. (laughs) Uh, You know, I guess we're all under house arrest now.
0: David really wanted a band and he needed a drummer, but there he was sitting at home all alone.
1: And so I had an idea for, uh, like to design a hands-free drum machine, but eventually I built it. It's called the Beat Buddy. And uh, it's the world's first guitar pedal drum machine. Allows you to control a a drum beat hands-free while you play your instrument with your hands.
0: Always a salesman. Now selling beats, not bullets.
1: Much less stressful than the arms business. (laughs) I never want to be in that business again. So uh, a message to all your listeners. Please do not contact me asking me to teach you how to be an arms dealer. I get that all the time. No, you do Uh, not. I do all the time. Constantly.
0: Do you think you were the only massage therapist in the world that eventually became an arms dealer?
1: Well, I haven't met another one, so I have to assume so.
0: This season on The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller... I've buried probably a hundred friends to drug overdoses. You either die or you go to prison. We met six characters from six totally different black markets, such as steroids, sex, and fake art. So you had them made entirely from as a forgery. Yes, you go to the placa, you find in, in Athens, you find twenty uh, icon painters. How they made it big? So millions. You you made millions out of this. Out of your. The business. company made millions. No. Remember, the IRS is listening. Shush. <laughs> how they lived the highlights. I'd see people empty a bag out, Boom. and start snorting right on the table, and the waitress take their order like nothing was going on. And how it all came crashing down. After I bailed out of jail, I remember sitting out on my pool and going,
1: how did I mess up the best job on earth?
0: All episodes are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Trafficked Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to the National Geographic TV series Trafficked and is produced for Nat Geo by Muck Media. Margaret Catcher is lead producer. Ted Woods is executive producer and audio engineer. Abby Spears is associate producer. And Paula Benson is line producer. Production assistance by Scott Kirk. Original music by Jeff Morrow. The Traffic TV series is available now on National Geographic, and new episodes air Wednesdays. Executive producers for Nat Geo are the awesome Chris Albert, the amazing Bengt Anderson, and the fabulous Matt Renner. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Blunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Mariana Van Zeller. Special thanks to Zoe Har, Todd Herman, Vilma Linares, and David Packhouse. And don't forget, if you like this podcast... Rave about it to your friends. And thank you for joining me in the underground. the underground.